Welcome to Washington Outlook 2016-2017, hosted by Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. My name is Blake Rutherford, a member of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and I'm joined today by two senior Washington insiders. Mark Alderman, the chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, who served as a member of the 57th Electoral College and the Obama-Biden presidential transition team, and Howard Schweitzer, managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, who served in high-level executive branch positions under Presidents Bush, Clinton, and Obama, including as the chief operating officer of the TARP program and general counsel at the Export-Import Bank. Gentlemen, thank you for taking the time today to discuss and forecast the critical months ahead in our nation's capital. Thanks, Blake. First, though, we have to conclude this election. Please. We, have, we are all following the polls closely. I hear reports of people checking Nate Silver's 538 site as much as four times a day to see if the numbers have changed. Mark, I want to start with you. What is the state of the electoral map going into Election Day? Well, the first thing to say, Blake, is that anybody who is only checking Nate Silver four times a day is barely paying attention. Because <laughs> I personally, was it four times an hour? I, I've cut it back to two or three. But I've cut it back to two or three because the race is settling in and may even be locked. Secretary Clinton is going to become the 45th president of the United States. The only question left is how big, and it could be big. It could be a landslide with many fewer implications than the ordinary landslide, which we'll come to. But this, this election is over but for the voting. It, the voting's happening already. I mean, let's, let's remember 40% of the ballots cast are going to be as I've said on, on prior discussions we've had, they're going to be cast early. So it's, it's happening. It, this is, it's, done. it's done. It's done at the presidential level. It's not done down ballot, and that's huge. That's right, Howard. The Senate appears to be very competitive, with a number of key Republicans having to defend their seats. The House, which Republicans hold by a, a wide margin, is more competitive this time than it was in the midterm. Howard, what, what's your outlook for the Senate and what's your outlook for the House? Well, the House, let's talk about the House first because that's easy. The Democrats are certainly going to pick up seats, but not enough to, to take the House. So it's going to be a, a more extreme House majority for the Republicans, but a smaller House majority. Uh, so that's the House. And, and that has many implications for legislating, um, but, but again, um, they, they keep the House. The Senate, to me, is an absolute toss-up. The, the uh, Democrats need, it, it, depends how you, it depends how you count. I think it's really interesting, and, and people aren't fully thinking well. through what, what they need to do. But they need, assuming a Clinton presidency, they need to gain four seats in order to have the majority, in order to control the chairmanships. But what they really need, as Mark, as I said to you earlier, five is the new four. They need five seats because Tim Kaine is going to be the vice president. He's not going to be in the Senate anymore. Terry McAuliffe can appoint somebody for a year, 
But then there's a special election in Virginia, and that's up for grabs. It's obviously a state that can swing either way. And so it could be a very short window for the Democrats. It's short anyway, but it could be a very short window for the Democrats to maintain control of the Senate. It's two years at the outside. It could be a year, those of you who uh, remember the two-year lock that the the President Obama had on the Senate in his first term, uh, that became a year when Ted Kennedy died. And after an appointment of Paul Kirk for an interim term, Scott Brown beat Martha Coakley, and that was the end of the 60-vote majority. Here we're talking about a 50-plus-one majority with the vice president uh, breaking that tie and being the plus-one. What I think is interesting about the Senate races and the reason I think the Democrats will take control and maybe even get their five, Howard, is the states where the battle is being fought. They overlap to a considerable degree with the battleground states for the presidency. That turns out to be more coincidental than not. There's nothing automatic about a battleground state for the presidency also having a competitive Senate race in a presidential year. But this year they do. You have Pennsylvania, which is no longer really competitive at the presidential level, but let's just take that for example. Whether Pat Toomey keeps his job, I believe, depends on how big Hillary Clinton can roll up the vote in Pennsylvania. If she can beat Trump by seven, eight, nine points in Pennsylvania, which is where the polling average is settling in, Katie McGinty will be a senator because Toomey is not going to outrun Trump by that margin. If she wins by three, four, five votes, maybe not. Maybe Toomey outruns Trump. And you have that playing out in Nevada. You have that playing out in New Hampshire. You have that playing out in North Carolina. The states that are going to Florida. Florida. The states that are going to determine control of the Senate are states where it's the Senate candidate plus Hillary Clinton who needs to go out and win that election. It's it's razor thin. And I was looking at some of the Real Clear Politics polling this morning. It's all all over the place. If you look at the, the actual polls, not their averages, but the actual polls, Blake and Mark, it's like, Literally, like one poll can have one candidate down three and they're up nine in another poll. It's crazy. I saw that with um, Cortez Masto in Nevada. They're all over the place. And I don't quite know what to make of it, but the um, predictive markets, the the online places you can go and, and bet on the outcome of the election have the Democrats at a 78% likelihood of, of taking the taking the Senate. so Of picking up four. Picking up four, not, not five. five. No. But we're going to get five. We're going to win Indiana. We're going to win Illinois. We're going to win Wisconsin. We're going to win Pennsylvania. And we are going to win New Hampshire. Now, if we lose Nevada 
we're going to need Jason Kander to pull off an upset in Missouri, which I think is very realistic. I, I'm, I'm calling for five and two years of control. It really depends. I mean, look, I think there's still – Trump does not have – there's not enough pro-Trump um, people who won't tell you they're going to vote for Trump out there to carry the election for him. But I think there's still enough of that out there, people who are going to pull the lever for him but who won't tell you they're going to pull the lever for him that I think it can make a difference on, on election day and, and in the early voting, as I said earlier, and we'll see. I we'll think see. you're half right. I think there is a hidden Trump vote, a silent Trump vote, whatever his wacky campaign manager calls it. But there's also a two-point advantage for the Democrats on the ground. We have a ground game. The Republicans at the presidential level have none, none, zero. Even down ballot, their people have been scrambling to put together statewide operations late and, and underfunded. I think the ground game cancels out the silent vote. I think the numbers are what you see. And uh, I, I think she, meaning Secretary Clinton, is actually going to carry some of these people Look, the, across the, the line. The smart money is on the Democrats, there's no doubt about it, to take the Senate because of the tiebreaker. But I think, Mark, you're underestimating the ground game a little bit. It's not a ground game that's for Trump. But I, I asked Senator Nelson from Florida recently what he made of, of the election, and he pointed out to me that in Florida, yes, Trump has a handful of, of offices, but, but um, the Koch brothers have 40-something field offices. They're organizing people. So I think, yes, it's easy to think about the top of the ticket, but it's much different when, when you look down ballot and groups like that that are out there organizing folks, well, and we'll see what happens. We, we shall see without descending too deeply in this disagreement here. I'm not so much saying that there is no ground game in Florida or elsewhere at all. I'm saying that the ground game is so absent at the top of the ballot that Secretary Clinton's margin is going to be so large that the Senate candidates in five places aren't going to be able to outrun Trump by enough to win. So let's talk about the macro implications of that. Um, listening to you um, we're, we're, we're on a course uh, for uh, President Hillary Clinton, White House, a Speaker Paul Ryan-controlled House of Representatives, and with some, some probability, 78% um, or better, a Democratic-controlled Senate for a time. Howard, what are the macro implications uh, of that, and what is the power structure in Washington look like um, on Inauguration Day? I think different people have different views of where the power resides in Washington, but Hillary Clinton is going to be the President of the United States. She is the chief executive, and yes, Congress has the power of the purse and uh, the power to legislate, but in my view, and I'm biased because I'm, you know, spent a lot of time in, in on the executive branch side of the ledger, look, that's where the there's serious, serious power there, and, and she's got it in the first instance. But um, 
Paul Ryan in the House, very, very important. But a, as I said earlier, a more extreme caucus, a more difficult to manage caucus. And because they're knocking out some of the moderate R's in both the House and the Senate, by definition, those are the people that are more likely to go down this year um, to, to moderate D's. Um, it's going to be very difficult for him to um, to get the, the requisite number of votes to, to move things. And then in the Senate, it's a, it's a more progressive caucus. And also you've got Hillary with all her power, even though she may be more moderate in, in some respects, she has got to pay back, in quotes, um, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. She owes Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren big time, big league. <laughs> well, I'm going to come back to disagree with that a little bit in a minute, but let me give a little different take on all of this. I think you have to look at the leadership positions as Howard was doing. I think you cannot overestimate the difference in power between being the majority and the minority. You control all the chairmanships, you control the agenda. I think on the House side for a minute, first Paul Ryan has to get reelected speaker. And he probably will, but he might need some Democratic votes to do that. We heard earlier, Howard, you and I, and talking with a United States Senator who shall remain nameless for this part of the program at least, that maybe Pelosi and Ryan are talking about keeping Ryan in the speakership and Ryan's commitment to work with her on getting things done. So nothing is automatic in the House. In the Senate, there was talk of Dick Durbin challenging Chuck Schumer, maybe somebody else. But that's not happening. Chuck Schumer will be the majority leader of the United States Senate. However, however, Tim Kaine is going to be a very, very powerful person. You asked where the power resides, Blake. If, in fact, we pick up four seats, net four, and it's 50-50 and Kaine has to break every single tie, Tim Kaine is going to be in a position to have his voice heard in a way that many vice presidents throughout history uh, ha have not. And, and lastly, just to uh, go to the Clinton point, well, yeah, maybe some deals got made, maybe not. And I think Hillary Clinton is going to be a far better president than she was a candidate. I... I would not predict that any discussions during the campaign are ironclad contracts that are going to get enforced and executed uh, post-election. Such a lawyer. <laughs> well, the outlook for Congress will be critical for anyone whose agenda will be affected by the power structure that both of you just described. Um, to that end, what can we expect or, or what what can we anticipate from Speaker Ryan's agenda, from Majority Leader Schumer's agenda, and some key committees? Um, and who are the who are the power players beyond those two that we need to be we need to be mindful of and paying attention to? 
Well, how, for Paul Ryan personally, it's uh, it's well known that he wants tax reform. I mean, he said that forever and a day. He shared ways and means, and um, there was a question about whether he'd take the speakership because he wanted that gavel so so badly. But um, you know, I think tax reform is at the top of of his his agenda certainly. And I think it's different, Mark, in, in the Senate um, for, for Schumer. Well, I think it begins, as you said a moment ago, with the White House. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Tim Kaine recently. Blake, you'll remember, it was thanks to you that I was lucky enough to have that conversation. And what Senator Kaine said was that there is a very clear, very clear 100-day agenda for the Clinton administration, infrastructure, immigration, and education slash student loans. I think that will be the Senate agenda. I think that the Speaker will, of course, push his tax reform, and there'll be trading to be done to get the Clinton agenda done. But I would expect Senator Schumer's agenda to be the president's. I, I totally agree with one addition, appointments, including right. presumably a Supreme Court appointment if they don't confirm the current nominee during the lame duck. Um, but getting her nominees through is probably priority number one for, for Chuck Schumer, for Hillary Clinton for that matter. And Elizabeth Warren, with her personnel as policy right. uh, way of looking at things, certainly believes that that's critically important. So that and that's where the power on the progressive side of things comes. Again, I am much more dubious about deals that got made and are going to be honored than I am about the raw political arithmetic of. Chuck Schumer needing 50 votes and a tiebreaker to get an appointment approved, which means he can't lose any Democrats. And that's where every single Democratic senator matters, and especially an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, who have lots and lots of people behind them. The appointment policy is something I've spent a lot of time on. It's really, it's a very interesting process. And you know, the public, the country focuses on things like the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury and Supreme Court justices, but all the magic happens below that. And any single senator can put a hold on essentially a sub-cabinet nominee, and it happens all day, every day. It happens every administration. No one ever talks about it. It's incredibly powerful. And they can grind the government to a halt by slapping a hold because of some, you know, policy that they don't like or some agenda item at the Department of Education. Whatever it is, they don't even have to well, tell the reason. And two observations about that. Number one, uh, I'll bet it would surprise most, if not all, of our listeners to know something that you know far better than I, Howard, which is that it is something like 1,500 positions that are subject to Senate confirmation. We're not talking about 15. 
we were talking about staffing up the upper level of the entire yeah. United States government. And, and secondly, on the one hand, this is a third Obama term. It's a continuation more than a transition. So the government won't empty out altogether. But there are a lot of positions unfilled right now. And Time. the new president is going to have a half-empty government on day one to fill with Senate-confirmed appointees. Now, it will be easier because I don't think the litmus tests will be as significant under the Clinton administration as they were under the Obama administration. I mean, for finding candidates. For finding candidates. So, and, yeah. and I think you'll get we'll get a lot of our old friends who have served in prior administrations coming back prior to the prior Clinton administration, most specifically uh, uh, coming back. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a Herculean task. And, right, and just the magnitude of it, apart from the politics of it, the magnitude oh my of gosh. selecting and vetting, vetting and then proposing 1,500 senior government executives is a, more than a full-time job. I mean, I've done, personally, I've done about 25, taking them through the process, and it is an all-consuming exercise. And, and it, it's, yeah. it's a big thing. And, it's, and back to the point, for Chuck Schumer, he's got to manage that, and that gets super political. It gets into what every single senator cares about, as we were saying, on a personal constituent level, and those politics have a big impact on the legislative agenda, even though they're disconnected on, and, for the and most just part. To bring it back, if I may, to part of Blake's question about committee chairmanships, we can come to the House in a moment. But <laughs> Majority Leader Schumer's first job is to staff up the Senate and to get the chairmen and women of the Senate committees appointed. And that is a whole political cauldron all of its own. But, but I do think that there are some positions that are, that are likely, that, that are very, very key to what's going to uh, happen next. I think you'll see, if all goes according to plan, you're likely to see Ron Wyden as chair of the Senate Finance Committee, which is critical to health care, critical to trade, critical to tax. tax. And, and we know Senator Wyden well. We've been lucky enough to talk to him plenty of times about it. He has his own ideas. Yeah, some of them are bipartisan. Ideas. And by the way, he and Paul Ryan. Some of them he shares with Speaker Ryan. Exactly. They've done, they've done business together before, and, and there's no reason to think they yep. can't again. So it, it's interesting. I think, Blake, if I could just add one other thing. Um, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but as, as, as remote and ridiculous as it is to talk about 2018 before 2016 has been decided, in 2018 there are 33 Senate seats up for re-election up for election, and 26 of them are currently held by Democrats or those who caucus with the Democrats. Five of those are held by Democrats in states that will vote for Donald Trump. 
So if you want to know what some of the pressure points are, I mean, it just gets very complicated politically because Chuck Schumer has to help a Joe Donnelly, a Heitkamp, a Manchin, a Tester, a McCaskill. He's got to help them get reelected in 2018 or his he can kiss his majority goodbye. And and so well, and he has to placate the progressives, but he's also got to protect the moderates. That's what I wanted to say. Helping the moderates who are up in 2018 cuts hard against taking care of Senator Warren and Senator um, Sanders, Senator Whitehouse, and and others. So this <laughs> nothing's going to be easy about putting together this this new government. Well, it it seems that in election years where there is going to be a change in the White House, we talk about the lame duck session as being particularly active. Before we get to uh, the new administration, before we get to the new leadership, we will have a little bit of time where the current Congress uh, will come back. Do you anticipate any significant activity in the lame duck, Howard? I think it's mostly appropriations kind of stuff and they're getting out of town. They're not going to do. Um, they're certainly not going to do the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They're not doing TPP. They're not going anywhere near trade in the lame duck. They're not um, doing the Supreme Court. I don't think so. I mean, I they they probably yeah. should as a policy matter, but 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 they're not going to. They're getting out of town. They're either extending or um, or passing some sort of omnibus appropriations bill. And I don't think, um, you know, maybe they deal with my old agency, the Exim Bank. Maybe they, they grant Exim a temporary quorum or something like that. But um, it's not going to be a very significant lame duck. I agree. I don't think that you're going to see major legislative accomplishments in the lame duck. I do think, though, that the potential for mischief is unlimited. There will be a spending bill, whether it's one large omnibus or smaller minibus bills. And all of those are, as they say, Christmas trees on which to hang ornaments. And that means that all kinds of business that was left undone during the McConnell era in the Senate and the Obama administration altogether, there could be all kinds of mischief in the ornaments that get hung on the tree. And and I think for our listeners, the point is, if there's something either pending that is of great importance or something that got done recently that is of great importance, you got to pay attention and you got to make sure that nothing that got done comes undone. Nothing that is undone gets done in that session because there's going to be all kinds of stuff. It's going to be what it always is, Blake. We aren't even going to know what happened until a week later when it when the bill gets printed and everybody can read it. <laughs> well, let's fast forward uh, a little bit. You have alluded to... Um, a, an agenda that will be robust in presumably President Hillary Clinton's first 100 days. Uh, Mark, what do you expect specifically? You talked about um, some issues generally, but uh, I'd like to get into the specifics. The major 
agenda items that we can expect to see in her first 100 days? Well, I mentioned a moment ago a number of them. I think that it is beyond clear that she is going to propose an infrastructure bill to address infrastructure writ large, not just repairing our bridges, but green energy infrastructure and travel, air traffic, freight, the broadband access. For all we know, the AT&T and Time Warner merger, which didn't exist when we planned to do this call and does today, will be a, a significant item. We know it will be a significant item of debate. It may play into her agenda. But the one thing that I want to highlight, because I know my friend Howard disagrees with me on this, and I am so looking forward to being right about it, there will be major immigration reform accomplished by President Clinton by Majority Leader Schumer and Speaker Ryan in the first 100 days. She wants to do it, he, Schumer, wants to do it, and Ryan has to. Ryan has to because everybody who's paying attention knows he has a future, he hopes, in higher office, and that future is flat out foreclosed if he doesn't deliver immigration reform. And it's not hard. There was a bill that got through the Senate. It dies with the Congress. But all you have to do is pick it up and submit it again. And the devil's in the details. But I am telling you that Secretary Clinton, I'm sorry, President Clinton, is going to sign immigration legislation this spring. So immigration and 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 Can't infrastructure. Can't wait to take your money. Right. So well, it's a uh, dinner bet, I believe. But 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 Howard, additionally, yeah, right. <laughs> additionally, right. we've talked about tax reform, and and we suspect there will be a health care component. I, I do for for all of our listeners want to talk a little bit about some of the specifics so people know what to keep their eye out for um, and and what to think about. So. Uh, on the infrastructure and tax reform issues, Howard, um, where, where do you sense the real focus will be um, and what should people be paying attention well, to? Well, I think the macro focus on all of this, and I think you can even lump Mark's favorite topic, immigration reform, um, because Tim Kaine told him they were going to do immigration reform into right. this. Um, well, he's a very honest guy. He's an honest guy. He's never lied to He me. is going to be the vice president, so um, that's a good friend to have. Vote. The, um, it, it's the economy, stupid. The coming out of this election with as much dissatisfaction as there is in the electorate, both parties, both parties have an interest in growing the economy. It's the only way this country moves forward. It's the only way to make the people who feel left behind feel like they're part of part of this thing. It's the only way to to dig us out of the holes we're still in as a result of I think back to something I was obviously intimately intimately involved in the in in the bailout. I think this country is still each and every day uh, playing out politically and economically bailouts and bonuses, and it still hurts. And we still are in a very slow growth. 
um, low, very low growth, slow growth economic environment, and that's what needs to be dealt with. And that will be the um, sure unemployment's down, but but with many, many, many people left behind. And I think both parties will be fighting to make the Trump voters, who, by the way, um, as, as much as he may be deplorable, it, 40% of the of the electorate is not deplorable, and both parties will be fighting for, for their loyalty and their votes going forward. You wrap that all in economic growth, and yes, immigration is relevant to economic growth. Infrastructure is relevant to economic growth. Tax reform is highly relevant to economic growth. So I think that's the broad agenda. I, I think it's something that both parties can feast on, and and that's how I see this being framed. And so as we as we think about, you know, Mark, something we haven't touched on yet, which is health care. Um, there has been a lot of discussion about health care and a lot of discussion about um, the need to uh, revisit some aspects of the Affordable Care Act. You bring a lot of experience in the health care arena um, to the table. I thought you might elaborate a little bit on what we can expect in the health care arena, if anything. Well, I appreciate you citing my experience. I once upon a time used to brag that I was asked in the early days of the Obama administration to lobby Congress on behalf of the administration for the Affordable Care Act. As the popularity of the Affordable Care Act has waxed and waned, I've found myself telling that story less often. But we are very involved in our practice, of course, Blake, with many healthcare enterprises, and they are in need of clarity. They are in need of continued reform. And I think you will see the Affordable Care Act getting patched up in, in some manner. It's certainly what Secretary Clinton has uh, campaigned on. But I think there's another issue which does actually arise out of the um, Affordable Care Act in part, which is drug pricing, which is a very hot topic in this country. It is on the ballot, literally, in California on on Election Day. And I I would expect there to be a lot of action uh, on that, at least a lot of rhetoric, if not a lot of action, on, on drug pricing in this Congress. And because there is at least a little bit of a disagreement between the two of you over, over immigration's role in this first 100 days, but Howard, you alluded to it in, uh, in the context of economic growth, whether mm-hmm. it finds its way to the agenda or not. If, if I'm looking at, at this sort of big picture and, and, and taking a look at the ramifications of immigration reform in my business, uh, how do you see the, the, the agenda, if it were to, to come about, what do you see from immigration reform? What are sort of the big ticket items that would be part of that reform effort? Border security, for one, um, dealing with issues related to foreign workers in the, in the tech industry is another, and obviously the path to citizenship and dealing with people who are currently here on an undocumented basis is, is obviously going to be part of the discussion uh, at the end. And, and look, you got to be in the game. Like, 
if you care about immigration on some level, and I guess we all do on some level, but if you're a business to your question, Blake, that um, needs foreign labor that, that relies on it, you, just because I think, just because I'm gonna win the dinner bet with Mark about passage, doesn't mean it's not going to be proposed by the president, which it is, and debated extensively and bargained over. And I may be wrong. Um, and and even if I'm even if I am even if I'm not, it, it, that simply means it it stays on the agenda longer. And you've got to you can't join the agenda six months down the road. You got to be in it. Well, and, and that's a critical point, if I may just agree with Howard on, on something. We keep saying first 100 days, first 100 days, as though there's some constitutional uh, magic to that. I guess maybe it came out of the New Deal and Roosevelt's first term, but there is actually very practical magic to the first 100 days because the agenda gets set. It gets set by the president in her, which is the first time we can say that in American history, in her budget priorities. It gets set by the leadership in the House and the Senate in the order in which they are going to address her priorities. And even though it goes on and on for a year, maybe two with Democratic control. It goes on for four years under her term, we all know. What happens in the first hundred days is absolutely predictive of where legislation is going to go in this next Congress. And to repeat the point that Howard and I have each made again, Anyone with any interest in any of this needs to be paying attention, starting in the lame duck, and then eyes wide open for the first hundred days. I just don't see the president. I don't see the second President Clinton. I can't believe we're now to the point where we're talking about multiple families and their second presidency, but I, we are. And the Adams. I guess president. that's true. Um, it was a couple hundred years ago, so. But I, I think it worked out. Though. It's um, it's. I don't see this President Clinton mortgaging her political future on a particular piece of legislation, the way Barack Obama did with the Affordable Care Act. I just don't see it. I mean, he had to then beat it back his entire term, it dominated his presidency. When we look back on the last eight years and the history books are written, Obamacare is going to be front and center. And I don't think she wants a presidency like that. I think they know, I think she and her husband know more about how to get things done in Washington than Barack Obama did when he became president. In fact, I am absolutely certain of that since they've actually held the office. No question. And she is not mortgaging her political future on immigration reform. That's why I think at the end of the day, it doesn't pass. I think things, and Blake, I never really answered your question, like tax reform, where there's enough room in there for everybody to eat. You can give the progressives some things, but you can also give the business community a lot of what it needs. You can modernize the tax code. That being tied to infrastructure finance, where... 
Um, there's bipartisan support. There may be differences in terms of how you get there, but there's a bipartisan recognition of the need to improve the nation's infrastructure, and it has huge implications for economic growth. So from a, a pragmatic point of view, I just think that something things like that are more likely to get done than something that is so politically divisive like immigration. Well, if I may, one minute for rebuttal. A couple of things. Of course, the Clintons know more about the job than the Obamas did when they got there. I agree with you that she isn't going to mortgage her presidency to any single piece of legislation as the president did. By the way, I'm going to drop a footnote and say good for him. There are 20 million Americans with health insurance today because he was willing to take that risk. And he is leaving office more popular than the woman who is going to succeed him. But number three, I think she is going to be such a good president with all of the training and all of the inside experience. Her, with who she is, I think she can get it done without betting her. I think she's going to be it. great at the shaking hands and inviting people to the White House and engaging and reaching across the aisle. She had a great record of doing that as a senator. And she that's gets, how she's going to get it yeah, done. Yeah, she gets that part of the job. Yeah. And it's, it's... That's how she's going to get it done without betting her presidency. But, but, but I think, look, the presidency, and I'm fortunate enough to have been in some high-level decision-making environments inside a couple of administrations. And at the end of the day, you have tons of advisors and people feed you all sorts of information. And they te But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, her presidency, I know you say you think she'll be a great president. I hope she is because the well, country needs a great president. It's also but it comes down to her judgment. It's going to come down to her judgment. And, and I don't and have any basis for concluding one way or another. I'm going to say that here's something you can take to the bank, to the infrastructure bank, okay. if you will. Her first hundred days, maybe her entire presidency, will be framed by, driven by, will be shaped by something we have no idea is going to happen sitting here today. That's how it works. That's what will again happen and if we knew what it were we'd tell you but but stay tuned because something's going to happen and everything we said is going to remain true and valid because we of course know what we're talking about of course. but but it's all going to look very different when whatever we don't know is going to happen actually does so as we wind down our our discussion howard i want to i want to conclude with you um Thank you, Blake. <laughs> it's because I'm way ahead on points. <laughs> what are the important takeaways for any business whose interests may be affected by what happens between Election Day and that sort of mid-April 100-day point? What, what do they really need to be mindful of? Need to be mindful of participating in the, in the process of engaging in a, in a town that has frankly turned um, a lot of people off and and that hasn't gotten much done over the course of, of recent years. And 
I think you can't let that dissuade you from from engagement. You know, I tell all of our clients, all of our clients are are business clients and, and others, they employ people. Jobs and economic um, the contribution to the economy are incredibly important to Washington. And you've got to go there and explain to your legislators, explain to people in the administration um, why you matter. And you've got to develop relationships with these people. You've got to explain to them how what you do relates to what they do. And there's a lot, that, that's a very long-term engagement that, that we, we help our clients undertake. But um, more immediately, a lot, as, as you were saying, Mark, a lot is gonna happen at the beginning of this administration. I think there's a lot of machinations we've gone through on this call and can go through in terms of how it plays out. But Washington is gonna be open for business more than, than it has been in, in the past, I, I believe. And, and so you've got to be part of it and be engaged. Well, this has been Washington Outlook 2016-2017, hosted by Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Thanks for listening.